It is April 2015, and resident historian Doug Kank Crispin has been reading. This is some kick-ass Oregon history. Welcome to another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked out history folks at orhistory.com. I'm your host, Andy Lindbergh, and under the guidance of resident historian Doug Kent Crispin, we profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. Kick-Ass Oregon History is a presentation of ORHistory.com and is supported by listeners like you. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit ORHistory.com and click Donate. This is resident historian Doug King Crispin, and this is another episode of the Kick-Ass Book Club, and it's my favorite book club that I've ever been in because I get to choose all the books we read. No more selections about some 40-something divorcee wandering the world to find their happy place. It's just solid books about Oregon history. We interview the authors who wrote these books and present them with probing questions about why their book should be in the Oregon Library, and we'd like to encourage you to ask them questions too. Just go to our Facebook, our Twitter, or email us your questions for your favorite authors, and we might just ask yours. This is resident historian Doug Kink Crispin, and I'm sitting down with Don Dupay, who wrote the recent book, Behind the Badge in River City, a Portland Police Memoir, and Teresa Griffin-Kennedy, who edited the book. Uh, I want to thank both of you guys for sitting down and chatting with us today. And I also want to point out that you guys have started the new podcast, Murder by Experts. With J.D. Chandler. With J.D. Chandler and J.B. Fisher's on that as well. It's a, it's a very fun, kind of an old-timey show podcast, so we'll be sure to link to that on our episode page as well. Well, uh, to start off with, Don, give us kind of the elevator speech, the short and sweet, what the hell is Behind the Badge in River City about? The Behind the Badge in River City is a story of my time with the Portland Police Bureau when I was a, both a patrol officer and a detective from 1961 until 1978. Uh, it's a history piece for certain. Uh, everything in the story is about 50 years old. I was fortunate enough to outlive most of the miscreants in the story, and uh, that's what it's about. It's a Portland history story. Now, you wrote this book, or at least a draft of this book, in 1991-1992, as it says in the introduction. It was 235 typed pages. Why did you write that book in the 90s? Back in the 90s, that was when the time when I had to get the story off of my chest and out of my head. And I also wanted to uh, have as accurate a portrayal of what it was really like as possible while it was still reasonably fresh in my memory and still kind of angering me. And uh, that's when I wrote it. Uh, I sent it off to be published uh, to a publishing company and they said, gee, it's nice, but it's, it's a collection of anecdotes and I'm sorry, but it's really not publishable. And so it, 
uh, came with any other rejection letter, and I put it under the bed in the box and it sat there for the next 20 some odd years. Uh, and I went on to do other things, wrote other things. So how is Behind the Badge in River City, this book that I'm holding right now, how is it different from those original 235 pages? The original 235 pages amounts to a bare-bones uh, uh, thing to hang, to hang the meat of the story on. When I was able to sit down with Teresa and go through it again and remember all the details, there's a lot of stories that uh, come to memory as we go through it. Also, at one point, we were able to get my personnel record from the Portland archives, which made it possible to confirm all the dates that are in there. It confirmed the uh, transferred times, uh, my times being transferred around the police department, and also the commendations and some of the names of the people that we worked with, good and bad. Now, there are some amazing passages in your book. You write a really detailed descriptive vision of Portland that many of us haven't seen before. You call Portland a little town in 1962. Was it? I mean, tell us about Portland in the early 60s. I always kind of felt that Portland was a small town. It certainly was in the 50s when I grew up here, went to the Hollywood Theater, grew up in the Hollywood District. It was a time when uh, you really didn't even lock your front door when you left the house. And then in the 60s, in the early 60s, it was pretty much the same way. It was kind of a small town. There were only six or 700 policemen in the city. It was a better time. It was a different time. I, Portland is a small town still in the minds of many. Was Portland a rougher place back then, or is that just the impression that one gets from reading your book? Portland was a rough place. People don't realize that Portland was a dangerous place. Uh, I don't know if it's any rougher or not. It's certainly bigger, there's more people, there's uh, a lot of crime, but then I don't know, when I worked homicide in 1975, there seemed to be an awful lot of murders, about one a week in the 1970s, so uh, was it more dangerous then? I don't know. In some ways, it was very dangerous. Now, you paint a very vivid picture of St. John's, too, which is a neighborhood that, that I grew up in and spent a lot of time in. Uh, you said that the locals there, the Tufts, uh, they called the North Precinct the St. John's Police. And at another point in the book, you say, at times it seemed to me that some of the people who lived in St. John's were just meaner than folks who lived in other parts of Portland. Tell us about St. John's when you patrolled that area. St. John's has also had, has always had a sense of self-identity that, uh, yeah, we joined the city of Portland, but maybe we shouldn't have, uh, maybe we did the wrong thing. So St. John's has always had that self-sense identity. We were always called the St. John's police. I can remember sitting at the bar drinking my coffee and Slim's and a customer asking, hey, do you belong to the St. John's police? Yes. I belong to the St. John's Police. It was a different time, and it was a lot tougher time. Uh, St. John's, downtown St. John's, was uh, occupied by a lot of people who turned out to be wanted, as I discovered when I started working there. So it was a tough town. It's been a tough town. It came from a tough, it came from a tough town time. And then Diamond Jim Purcell, of course, was uh, running the show there. Tell, tell us about him. 
Diamond Jam, as they called him, was the chief of police in the 1950s, and he was part of the overall corruption scandal that was uh, made public by uh, Robert Kennedy when he came to town with the uh, with the investigations. Uh, Jim Purcell Jr., uh, Mayor Terry Shrunk were both taken back to Washington, D.C. and asked a lot of questions before the subcommittee. Uh, Jim Purcell Jr. made the mistake of taking a lie detector test. They asked him questions about whether he took bribes. He failed the lie detector test. Uh, Mayor Shrunk was smart enough not to take the test. And then what was it like working for uh, for Diamond Jim? Well, Diamond Jim never changed his spots. He did lose his job as the chief of police because uh, it became interminable for him to remain. And I think that was about when he was, in 1957, I think it was his last year. Uh, any rank above captain, uh, a deputy chief, assistant chief, or chief of police is an appointed position. So uh, any appointed position then can then be taken away from you if the, the powers that be decide that's what should happen. So after his, his fall from grace, he was reduced to a police captain, which was the lowest rank they could, they could put him back to. And uh, he was transferred to North Precinct, where he was given command of the North Precinct, uh, which was then in the uh, St. John City Hall building. And he, he didn't change his spots. That's the thing about Jim Purcell. Uh, the leopard never changed his spots. He continued with the corrupt ways that he always had been doing. What One of the things that he had been doing was running prostitution houses. And he continued to do so. And uh, he continued to protect a couple of the prostitutes that had houses in the area that I worked in. And that's where he and I ran afoul of each other. He didn't want me messing with his whorehouses, and I wasn't about to turn my back on vice or criminal activities, no matter who was sponsoring them. And you have some great descriptions in there of kind of the game that, that Jim was running at that time. Now, mm -hmm. Carl Crisp is another one, too, that, that has, a, <laughs> has a brief mention in your book. And, of course, you know, some of the readers of the Stanford book and you know, Chandler book and so on are kind of familiar with him. You can tell us a little bit about working with Mr. Crisp. Well, Carl Crisp and Jim Purcell Jr. were bosom buddies. Uh, there's uh, letters on, in Jim Purcell's personnel file uh, I call it a love letter when he tells Crisp that he couldn't have done anything as well without him. So they were they were bosom buddies. And when I worked for Lieutenant Crisp, he was in charge of the vice squad, which was, in retrospect, would be very funny because he was in charge at that time of most of the vice in the city, particularly the causes of prostitution, that he and uh, Jim Purcell Jr. were probably cooperating at that time. So being young, idealistic, and a fresh face in the vice squad, they knew that I was not going to get involved in anything they wanted, so they diverted us young guys, and they set us on fool's errands. Go do this. Here's 20 bucks, 25 bucks. Go have a few drinks. See if you can find a poker game. See if you can find a few queers to arrest and stay out of our hair. And that's what they did. They sent us on fool's errands. And you talk about your old coach in the East Precinct, Fred Brock. And he told you, law or no law, our job is to solve problems. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. Well, here again, uh, 
during your first year you're on probation, you really don't have any say-so about anything, and you keep your mouth shut, as I was told. And uh, we are confronted with this situation, one of my first few days working with Fred Brock. Uh, this gentleman was on his front porch on Mississippi Avenue, drunk and uh, very loud, uh, uh, creating a disturbance, yelling and screaming, profanities. And Fred and I got the call. We stopped in front of the house. Fred was polite at first, trying to get the gentleman to start to be quiet and go in the house and mind his own business. And at that point, you could just see, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to handle it because I was new. So I'm waiting to see what the boss is going to do. So I could see the level of frustration rising in his eyes. And at one point, he just snapped his fingers. He ran up the concrete stairs. He went up onto the porch. He grabbed the guy that was yelling and screaming, grabbed him into a chokehold. Uh, dug him back down onto the sidewalk, yelling and screaming, and together we handcuffed him and stuffed him in the back seat of the police car. So we called the planting wagon, which was number 99, and 99 who came and picked up our prisoner. Uh, Fred Brock wrote the police report and made out the booking slip. And the booking slip said that we had arrested the, <clears throat> the gentleman for being drunk on the street. So when the paddy wagon left with the prisoner, I asked Fred, I said, how come we arrested this guy for being drunk on the street when he really didn't come within the 30 feet of the street till you drug him down here? And he looked at me kind of condescendingly and he said, son, we are hired to solve the problems and we solve the problems. Law or no law, we solve the problems. And it doesn't make any difference what he did. It's what I told the judge he did. That's the way it is on the street. And you kind of get into this a little bit. There's almost kind of like a different code of ethics. I mean, there's, mm -hmm. there's absolutely, there's bad cops in your book, mm -hmm. but there's good cops in your book too. And there also seems to be kind of this gray area mm -hmm. right in between the two. They're neither bad nor good, or maybe mm -hmm. they kind of mm -hmm. come in and out. Tell us about that. Tell us about, yeah. it's not black and white. It's not black and white, and it's... Uh, <clears throat> gray, gray area is a good description of how it is because you're taught one thing, you know, the idealism uh, that you're taught in the police academy, how it should be, and then when you get on the street, you find the real reality of it. Not necessarily, you know, really bad, but completely different, you know. I'm recalling my first day with my traffic coach. I didn't have on a uniform yet. Uh, I had written a thesis on human relations and how you talk to people politely for the police academy. And then on the street, we're driving down Mississippi Street in our black and white police car, my first, very first day, and uh, we see this black guy crossing the street, Mississippi, in front of us. And my coach says, see that nigger down there? We're gonna give him a jaywalking ticket. So we go right from, you have to be nice to people here, until we're gonna, and the next day we're gonna give that nigger a jaywalking ticket. That's that's the juxtaposition of the reality of the street. We solve the problems, no matter what the law says. We solve the problems. There's another example that you give. It's uh, the Burger Barn on Old Union Avenue, mm -hmm. which is today, of course, Martin Luther King, uh, and they ran a little gambling operation there. And it's also a late night cop hangout. And you say. 
We looked the other way about the intermittent gambling that occurred there and never did anything about it. The owners and their friends never got in any serious trouble or made any problems, which accounted for our leniency. So this is, again, kind of a, kind of a gray market situation, right? The gambling is happening. That yeah. is illegal. But you guys are drinking coffee there, and it's A-OK. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. It was a different time period. It was a time period when uh, playing a game of poker in your front room was technically against the law, and you could be arrested for for gambling. Uh, My immediate family were Sunday afternoon uh, poker players around around the dinner table, and so I never had any particular interest in it or felt it was illegal, but here it was, illegal, against a lot of gamble. What was going on in the burger barn was never really of much concern to us. You know, they weren't causing any problems. If they were causing problems, then they were going to get police attention. As long as they were let me drink coffee and let me pay my way, which they did, then we didn't bother them in the back. They didn't bother us. We didn't bother them. Sure, we looked the other way. That's the way it was. And then you worked on Vice for a while. You, you had an interesting line. You said, it became apparent to me that I was having increasing difficulties reconciling the morality of Vice work. Can you talk about that a little bit, the morality of Vice yeah. work? Well, the morality of it is, is, is very confusing to a young fellow, and I was like 25 or 26. Uh, one minute, you're a uniformed policeman, and... My job at working traffic was to arrest people who violated the law and arrest people for drunk driving. And I made a lot of drunk driving arrests. Uh, the next day, you're assigned to the vice squad. You put your uniform away, you wear your street clothes and your blue jeans, and you carry a small automatic in your pocket, and the boss gives you $25 to go drinking with, and then you get you into your unmarked car, and you drive around, and you try and look for prostitutes and gambling games, and you're drinking, and you're driving, and you're arresting people. The morality of that <clears throat> always seemed to bother me. Should a policeman who's drinking be arresting someone? And how do you reconcile, today it's okay to be a drug driver, and the next day it's okay to be a cop to arrest people? That morality is a whipsaw. It drove me crazy for a long time, and ultimately I couldn't, I couldn't stay in vice for very long because of that. The morality of it was just nuts. You, you painted this, this beautiful line. Um, you said, In my police career, I began to encounter two opposite societies coexisting in the same city of Portland, the night world and the straight working world with one culture barely aware of the other's existence. Mm -hmm. And then you talk about how Ray, your partner, and you uh, really succeeded in the environment because you were pragmatic about it. You said, the hookers and the pimps knew that as long as they didn't beat or rob tricks, we'd treat them fairly. So how did you fit between those two worlds? Does the the police officer bridge that gap? Are, Are they sent by the straight world? to clean up that night world? Yeah, they are. Uh, I worked the graveyard shifts almost exclusively during that time, and that's when the night people come out. Uh, um, That's when there's a whole industry that starts. It's the alcohol industry. It's the later on in the evening, it's the after hours business. 
the prostitution that went on really blatantly in those days was its own industry. Uh, the after-hours joints were serving alcohol, uh, pills, pot, uh, dancing, just about anything that you wanted. So this whole, this whole system of people, uh, the whole night people come out at night. And of course, they're all in bed by seven o'clock in the morning and the day people get up and they go to work. So these two societies coexist and they really don't know one another at all, but they do coexist. And so what's the policeman's role there? Yeah, the policeman's role is to, is to keep the lid, the lid on it. It's to keep it from getting, uh, you don't want the prostitutes bothering the daytime people. You don't want the, the, the gambling, you don't want that to be too blatant during the day. So it has to stay out there at night, yeah. And then you were a white cop in, a, in some predominantly black neighborhoods. And you talked some about the effects of the Watts riots on the Portland community. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was it like being a white cop in those racially charged times? I mean, Portland was a racist town, correct? It was a racist town. And uh, you asked me how it was, it was dangerous. That's how it was. Uh, the community now is not the same community as it, as it was in the 1960s because it was almost exclusively black. Uh, I've been asked, how do, you, how do you keep from being racist? Well, it's not so much that you're racist, it's just that because I wasn't racist. Uh, ultimately, I married a black woman. So uh, it's just a different situation, and I've lost my train of thought. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. So we're, we're talking about um, what was it like being a white cop in, in those predominantly black areas in that time that it was so racially charged? You were really looked at suspiciously because it seemed like the white cop was the only one that they could see. There were black police officers in the 60s, but the city had a way of, of hiding them. I don't like to say hiding them, but that's really what happened. Uh, I wasn't aware that there were any black police officers until I joined the police department. And I found, yeah, there were a few, uh, but they worked night shifts. The Duke brothers were probably the most famous of the two. Uh, They worked East Precinct graveyard shift. So, but they were out of sight on the night shift. Uh, Radio had a few. They were out of sight on radio. The jail division had black officers. So the black policemen that were there were mostly hidden out of sight at night. And you were uh, a burglary detective for quite some time. Yes. And, and you get into it quite a bit in your book. I Many really, years. really enjoyed that, that detail. You liked that detail a lot, didn't you? I had fun working burglary because I always had felt I had a natural affinity for figuring out where burglars were going to be and what they did. Uh, and I enjoyed the cat and mouse game of catching them. So, And, and you talk about that in the book. Yeah. You said you have a feeling. You, yeah. you could kind of tell where a burglar was going to happen. How, yeah. How did that happen? Did you develop I don't know. it? I don't know how that happened. It's just I always had a feeling it would they be, would they come back or not. When I was installing burglar alarms, it was a little bit easier for me because uh, I would find a place where, uh, like a doctor's office or a big business office, where they broke in and told all, stole all the business machines. I would go in there and put alarm in there, knowing that they would come back and get the new machines when the insurance company replaced them. Or the doctor's office would replace the pills, so I would put alarms in there where places where I knew they would probably come back. But it was just a cat and mouse game. I was I was pretty good at it. I did 
I think I had a 67% hit rate when I installed burglar alarms, and that's, for me, that was very successful because that meant that 67% of the times when I put an alarm in, it came back and got set off. Doesn't necessarily mean the burglar was captured because I didn't have any control over that. That was dependent on how quickly the responding officers showed up and, and maybe they captured them and maybe they didn't, but at least my hit rate was good. I was particularly proud of the cam house while we were talking about the alarms because I put the alarms in the cam house, which was the uh, uh, the place where um, it was sitting at that time as a vacant derelict building waiting for uh, historical uh, recognition. And so we put an alarm in there and had one in there for about a year and a half or two years and captured about 30, 32 to 35 people in there that would have either set fire or carded something off in that historic residence. Now, many burglars defecate at the scene of the crime. So I'll break it down. Uh, they take a <coughs> shit in the home that they burgle. So tell us about this situation. Why, why does this happen? How did you notice this? I mean, obviously you noticed, you know, but... Well, being a burglar is a very high stress. It's very high stress, and... Some of them get so worked up that they need to take a crap before they went in, or sometimes they take a crap when they were in. Uh, I would have a call sometimes to go to a scene of a burglary where the homeowner was complaining. He took a poop in my toilet and he didn't, didn't even flush it. What's that all about? Well, that's adding insult to injury in my opinion, but he was telling you that he was there and hell with you. So it's just a stress relieving mechanism. You talk about being on the safe detail and mm -hmm. going in and investigating these, these, the safe crackings. It's, it's a subject we did a podcast about a while ago. It was, it's a lot of fun uh, looking into some mm -hmm. of those crimes. And mm -hmm. You kind of almost wax nostalgically about the demise of the Yeg in mm -hmm. crime. Mm -hmm. why, why is that? Well, certain people you have to have a professional admiration for. I was uh, always uh, a little bit admire. I had an admiration for the people who were honestly good at what they did. Uh, Roosevelt Jenkins is in mentioned in the book by name. He was a, uh, a copper thief, and he was sealed copper. And he was blunt about it. He was very funny. He was honest. I'm a thief. This is what I do. You got to catch me at it. You know, uh, some of the burglars who were really good. You had to have respect for him because they were craftsmen. Billy Lewis was an exceptional man. He was a he was a craftsman at, at cutting with a torch. He was a craftsman at uh, making keys for things. So he was the total he was the total package, and he got away with burglary for a long time until he ran across me and my gang in the safe detail and made a few mistakes. We put him in prison. So you did look at these criminals as with a sense of admiration. Some of them. Some the, of them, the, yeah. You know, the skilled. They, the, the skilled safe burglar uh, got by imagination. The guys who would just turn the safe upside down and chop it open with an axe. Those were just the blue collar guys who didn't know any better. But they were they were effective, you know. But they weren't. They had, didn't have any admiration. They weren't professionals. So when you when you cuff that guy and you stick him in the back of the car, do you almost get a little smile on yeah. your face? Yeah. When we got Billy Lewis, I was really happy. Billy Lewis was a prize. Did he know it? Did he know that you were happy? 
Yeah, he certainly did know we were happy. You know, he made some serious mistakes, but we got him. And one of the other characters you talk about in your book, real live one, is uh, Ralph Himmelsbach. And, of course, some of our yeah. listeners uh, know of him from being the FBI case agent on the D.B. Cooper case. And you worked a bit with Ralph. Can you tell us a little bit about him? I never worked actually with Ralph on any cases, but he was a frequent visitor in the burglary office. He and uh, Detective John Skokol were friends, and they talked a lot about the D.B. Cooper case. And so he was in the office every once in a while, and we just sat and chatted. Was he obsessed with D.B. Cooper? Uh, obsessed is a good word, yes, he was, because it was a lifetime thing. It was very important. You know, how did this guy get away with all that? And when it never did come out how it all happened, but uh, Cooper was obsessed with it. He's deceased now, and he's probably still working on the case. What do you think happened to D.B. Cooper? Don't I don't have a clue. No clue at all? No clue at all. No. <laughs> No clue at all. I don't know how he got out of that airplane, how the money got, how some of the money got into the Sandy River is a mystery, you know. I wish I did. I'd be a millionaire. <laughs> and Ralph would be mad. Oh, he would. <laughs> you wrote about your burnout after 17 years. You said, crime never seems to get better. It just seems to get worse as society breaks down in one form or another. Mm -hmm. And you also wondered how you could possibly tell recruits that their life's work will be the ultimate exercise in fertility. And you thought that your career, uh, the end result was pointless and your contribution was irrelevant. Do you still feel that way? I do. Unfortunately, I do. I worked homicide and how many people did I put in jail for murder? It doesn't make any difference. People have murdered every day. How many burglars did I put in jail? Hundreds of them. Does it make any difference? No. Burglars are still burglarizing. People are still getting shot. Uh, murders are still happening. Uh, it just doesn't seem to be any end to it. And what you wind up with as a policeman is a serious uh, case of post-traumatic stress disorder. And ultimately what you've done is um, a very little satisfaction to you. And it was difficult for me, but I had to be honest with these recruits when I'm talking to them at the police academy. No matter what you do, the job is that you're not going to make any difference. And you should know that going in. What didn't make it into the book? <laughs> well, there are stories that just can't get into the book because they're too graphic or, or they came to memory after the story was written. There's stories about uh, Battling Nelson and his uh, connection to Elmo Jacks. And didn't Who, get who's Battling Nelson? His name was Willie Nelson. Uh, he, was a, he was a boxer back in the 60s uh, who couldn't box anymore. He was of some note and uh, wound up working as a, as a bouncer, gangster for the mob. And what happened with him? Eventually, uh, he, was, he was murdered. He was uh, hung upside down in some weight boots. He was quite a weightlifter and uh, tortured and murdered on some, something that went wrong, probably a drug deal because he, he was a drug person. And you had an interaction with him that I is in, in the book. you want to tell us about that? Uh, one early morning, I'm working traffic, and I'm sitting writing my report at about uh, 72nd Woodstock. 
And this Cadillac comes flying by about 60 miles an hour right in front of me, and whoo. So I turned on the red light and siren and chased him until I got him stopped out uh, near Flavel Street, which is out of the city limits, or was was out of the city limits at that time. Uh, got him out of the car, told him he was under arrest for uh, reckless driving, speeding, and uh, he says, I can't go to jail. And he turned around and he come at me with a, with, with a knife and just made a wild loop at me and I sucked in my stomach and was able to, to not be cut. And he took off and ran across the street. I pulled my gun out and I fired at him and uh, he disappeared into the darkness. The next day, uh, the detectives found him. Of course, we had the car. It was his boss's stolen Cadillac. We had the car. So we knew who probably was the driver. And uh, when they picked him up, he had a bullet hole in his, in his uh, lapel, not the lapel, but the side of his jacket he'd been wearing. So I came really close, and so did he. And you never had to shoot anyone on... Um, I never, uh, never had to shoot anybody. I'm very fortunate that I never had to kill anybody. As is uh, Mr. Nelson, too. He's, he's fortunate as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess he got his later, but... Yeah. Now, Teresa, tell us about the process of editing the book. Um, well, in 2012, I got the, the original manuscript, and it was 235 typed pages. And like Don said, it was kind of a... Uh, basically an outline for a book. Um, there were certain passages that were very developed and really interesting, and then there were other parts that were maybe one or two sentences, and I would read through these, and I would see, you know, this these two sentences here could end up seven or eight paragraphs, and m- basically my job was to edit the original manuscript and also to act as a creative collaborator, which I did. Um, we sat down together, I think we did eight line-by-line edits, and that included um, developing and fleshing out sections that needed more detail. And then I found um, a copy of Don's personnel file in August of 2013 um, through Jim Huff uh, with the Portland Police Museum. And that was extremely helpful because I, we were able to you know, confirm dates and names and places and times, and it was just really helpful. But it's amazing how much work goes into editing, and uh, it seemed like it was endless. <laughs> Well, it was, a, it was a great job. It's a wonderful read. It's a, it's a good book. It's a dark book. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I think that's fair to say. You know, yeah. it's, it's, not, it's not a ton of smiles and sunshine in, in the book. <laughs> uh, but it's obvious that, you know, you definitely, you worked through a process getting that out. And, of course, Teresa, it's obvious mm-hmm. that you definitely helped with that mm-hmm. as well. Um, you know, Don, you ran for Multnomah County Sheriff in 2006 yes and you earned 28 percent of the vote i found tell tell us about that why did you want to run for sheriff well here again idealistic moralist um the sheriff at the time was bernie justo who i always considered morally bankrupt and i ran against him because of that reason i had uh, a bully pulpit at that time because I was on a cannabis common sense television show and um, I had been on that co-hosting that show for f- three or four years at that time and so I was fairly well known and uh, we used to actually watch that show and take bong hits while we were watching it so well known but I'm sorry I interrupt 
Okay, the bong has got me. Okay. Uh, I ran against him because I thought he was morally bankrupt. And so I was able to garner enough support and get a little bit of money to get going. And I actually got 30,521 votes. Uh, he got a few more votes than me, so he won. I always felt vindicated, though, because it wasn't like about two years later, or a year or so later, he was kicked out of office by the Bureau of Pure Police Standards and Training who decertified him. They decided he was no longer morally fit to be a police officer, so they pulled his ticket. I was vindicated. You were. I, and, and I saw, I was looking back and did a little internet search on that, on that race, that run, and I saw some people calling you a hippie. And I, I couldn't believe, I felt that that was, a, that was an unfair characterization. It was an unfair characterization, and it was Willamette Week who interviewed me for uh, for the sheriff's situation capitalized on that. They reduced my platform to the pot-smoking grandpa who would be sheriff because talking about pot-smoking got a lot more newspaper sales than what my platform would be in the sheriff's office. So, yeah, it was the pot-smoking well, it was a it was a damn good campaign, and and like you said, you gave a very good very good showing, very vindicated. So, what do you want people to take away from behind the badge in River City? You need to know that it's an interesting story about the police department. It's an interesting story about Portland history. Uh, Portland is not the sweet, sleepy little town many think it is. It has and has had an underbelly of, of criminal activity for years. But it's a, it's a wonderful town. And uh, we're still a small town by many standards. Police work is police work. And it doesn't make any difference whether it's now or whether it's 50 years ago. The difference now is technology has made a difference. Uh, but police work, street police work is still the same. Community policing is still the same. You have to get out of the car, go talk to people. That's what community policing is. Uh, getting cops out of the car, letting them walk the district, that's expensive. And the reason that's the reason that community policing will never become community policing because it's simply too expensive. I think another thing that needs to be um, emphasized is that the book is a period piece and it is not an attack on the Portland Police Bureau or their current officers. I think a lot of people are suspicious of Don's um, motivations or uh, ulterior motivations for writing the book. It's not an attack on PPB. PPB is really one of the best police departments in the country. We still have issues, but um, the book is definitely a period piece, a history piece. Well, I want to thank you guys for coming in and chatting with us today. And, uh, you know, like I said, I really, really enjoyed the book. I think people should read it. Um, you know, Did you it, say that again? <laughs> I really enjoyed reading the book, and I think people should should purchase copies. So, Teresa, where could they get copies of the book? There are copies available at uh, Powell's um, City of Books, and you can also call Powell's 503-228-4651. <laughs> I memorize the number because I call them regularly. Um, you can also get it on Amazon.com. You can get a soft cover, or you can buy a Kindle version of it for $5.99. And we'll be sure to link to a commerce site on our episode page uh, for the program. Well, thank you very much for coming in and chatting with us today, Don. I do appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. And thank, thank you, Teresa. Thank you.
Thank you for listening, Ass Kickers. And be on the lookout for future podcasts from ORHistory.com. We hope that you agree that today's episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's podcast was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Doug Kank Crispin and Andy Lindbergh. Citations are available on request. Kick-Ass Oregon History is on Twitter at Oregon underscore history. Follow us on Instagram at Kick-Ass Oregon History. We're also on the Facebook. The email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. Want more Kick-Ass Oregon History in your life? Become a podcast supporter. Learn more at orhistory.com. Just don't get too close to Mr. Kent Crispin, or he'll read your book, too. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass. History.com.